Father, and in his word do I hope, and my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Thank you, Lord, for this portion of scripture. We pray your Holy Spirit would teach us and change us because of it today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You may be seated. And welcome again to Grace Point Church. We are glad you were here. And uh, welcome to extended family members who are here for the baptism today. And we are thankful that you were able to be here for that very special time. Psalm 130, as uh, we continue our study through the Psalms of Ascent, if you've been with us, Uh, you know that we're going through a series of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And they're called that because the pilgrims going up to Jerusalem three times per year at least uh, would go up to worship at those times designated by God. Uh, The going up at the annual feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and the Day of Atonement. So spring, summer, and fall, they would go up to Jerusalem from wherever they lived in Israel at that time. And they would sing these psalms probably. This is Hebrew poetry. They would sing them or at least recite them as they went up, and that's how they would teach their children. And so we are going through this series, and Psalm 130 uh, falls into this series. We're going through 134 that begins in Psalm 120 and goes through Psalm 134. So 15 psalms are called the Psalms of Ascent. And they're a collection of psalms. uh, Some of them were written by David, one by Solomon, but most of them are anonymous, uh, anonymously written down, and God directed whoever wrote them down to write them down, and so we are thankful that we are able to study them today. The great reformer Martin Luther, uh, this was one of his favorite psalms. He loved Psalm 130, and he called it one of the Pauline psalms. He also called Psalm 32, 51, and 143 the Pauline psalms. Why would he say that? Well, he was referring to the Apostle Paul, and in the New Testament, of course, the great doctrine of salvation in the book of Romans, really, you could take Psalm 130, and it would be a very brief Old Testament summary of the book of Romans, which was written hundreds of years later after this psalm was uh, written and collected for the book of Psalms. And uh, Martin Luther loved it because there is an offer of forgiveness uh, by grace apart from human works. And in fact, it is probably one of the best Old Testament expositions of the way of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ by grace through faith on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ's gift of salvation to us. And so Psalm 130 in itself is really a psalm of ascent. As we go through this, you'll see that it gradually goes from the depths of despair, the abyss of despair, to the high ground of steadfast hope. And in this psalm, there are four stanzas. Remember, this is poetry, and so there are four stanzas of two lines each. And so we see that uh, we have uh, verses 1 and 2 is one of the stanzas with two lines, and uh, we will continue to go through these. But Psalm one, uh, 130, verses 1 and 2, he starts at the, at the great sorrowful place, the abyss of defeat in a desperate situation. And it's reflective of all of human beings, all of mankind's desperate condition without the Lord Jesus Christ, without salvation in Jesus Christ himself. Verses 1 and 2 again, he cries out, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. 
He's crying from the depths. In the Hebrew language, which, of course, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, being in the depths refers specifically to being caught in dangerous and deep waters. We have to remember that it's a powerful image, especially for the original readers of this psalm and listeners to this psalm, even into the first century, because Jewish people were largely land-based. They were not a seafaring people. And so the ocean held great fear for many of them. And this image occurs many times in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 37. And it's nowhere more powerful than in Psalm 69, where the psalmist there writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. Perhaps uh, you have been in an event where you nearly drowned. For myself, there were two times in my life that I thought I was going to drown. One in uh, a lake near our hometown in Montana, the other one up in a high mountain lake uh, called Lion Lake, which is very appropriate in one sense. It's a very deep lake. And I can remember being really deep down into the water, and I could look up and see the light, but it was dark around me. And I thought I was going to drown, and for a moment I was going to give up just for a moment. That's the memory I have of that event because I was by myself there. Nobody would have known until later. And so when you think about the waters engulfing us and that idea of being drowning, that is the picture the psalmist is using here. He's crying out in the depths of his despair. So the question rises, what is bringing this psalmist, this writer to this point, to this dangerous condition? And, of course, as we go through the psalm, we're going to see it's not just suffering or adversity in life, things he's not in control of, but it's actually the troubling part is it's his own sin. And, of course, sin is pervasive. The Bible tells us, thinking of Romans and thinking of the Apostle Paul, in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is exempt. We all are born with the sin nature, and sin pervades us, and it's the expression of the evil that Satan has developed and is the champion of. It is, so it's not suffering the psalmist's talking about. It is his sin. And this record of sins in verse 3, he talks in verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, and we'll get to that for a moment. The great Puritan writer John Owen writes about this, these verses in his commentary he writes that this psalmist cries out under the weight and waves of his sins. This ensuing psalm makes this evident, desiring to be delivered from these depths out of which he has cried. He deals with God wholly about mercy and forgiveness, and it is sin alone from which this, there is forgiveness and a deliverance. Owens goes on to say, The doctrine also that he preached upon his delivery is that of mercy, grace, and redemption, and it's manifest at the close of this psalm. He writes that sin is a disease, affliction is only a symptom of it, unquote. Our problem today uh, pretty much is uh, we typically, as if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we typically have a hierarchy of sin, and they're usually the ones that we don't practice, aren't they? And uh, I think Paul addresses that in the book of Galatians about legalism, but uh, we really don't have a good awareness of what sin is, how sinful sin really is, and how it is abhorrent to God himself. Because remember, God is perfectly holy and righteous, 
And there is no mistakes, no sins, no, nothing that takes up his character. And so our lives tend to revolve around our day-to-day activities with very little awareness of our sins. We have this hierarchy. We think of sin in the sense of murder or homosexuality and all those things that seem so tremendous, and yet we forget that the sin of gossip and the sin of gluttony still are foul in God's sight, and we do need a Savior. We're crying out to be heard by God. In fact, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, if you're from a Presbyterian background, defines sin this way. Sin is defined only in relationship to God. It is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Uh, One of the things that's been fascinating to me in watching the news and popular media is they started using the word evil in the midst of traumatic events, whatever it is that evil was unleashed. Of course, if there is such a thing as evil, that means there has to be a God. You cannot deny uh, and accept evil without realizing there is a lawgiver, that there's some correspondence here that we need God in order to even define what is wrong and evil in the world today. So you and I need to recover a sense of our own sin and unworthiness before a holy righteous being. We need to realize how desperate our condition is, and that's what the psalmist is doing here. Out of the depths I cry out to you. We need to know that the God of wrath is not an outmoded concept. There is a biblical concept that God is going to deal and judge sin, and he is doing so even as we speak. That's the impending reality. And so we need to come out of our fantasy world that we live in, whatever that is, and tremble before the holiness of the almighty lawgiver, God himself, as revealed in Scripture. So what is the solution to this? That's all the bad news, isn't it? You know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3.23, and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And, of course, death there, and death in Scripture, as we look at, is basically separation. We think of physical death, and that is being physically separated from our physical being when our soul and spirit leaves our physical being, and that is a separation. But more importantly, there is a spiritual death that Paul is talking about here. The wages of sin is death, that we would forever be separated from the almighty, holy God. That is the bad news of the gospel. We need a Savior. Forgiveness, is it to be earned? Rabbi Zacharias, uh, some of you may have listened to him on the radio or read his books. He's an apologist. He's a speaker. Uh, He relates the following true story about a conversation he had in the Middle East with a a Palestinian who was Muslim in his belief system. And he writes this. He said, we were sitting in a coffee shop in Jerusalem, and he spoke in soft tones. And he mentioned to me that he observed a conversation between a leading Muslim teacher— and a Christian missionary named Andrew. The sheikh, or this, this Muslim teacher, had recently ordered the killing of eight Israelis because the Israelis had killed four Palestinians whom they had accused of crimes against the Jewish people. The Christian, Andrew, asked this Muslim, who appointed you judge and jury and gave you authority over such orders to kill people? This Muslim teacher replied, I am not the judge and the jury. I am merely an instrument of God's justice. And this young man reports that there was a moment of silence, and finally the Christian Andrew asked, what place is there then for forgiveness? And the Muslim teacher replied, forgiveness is only for those who deserve it. 
only for those who deserve it. And then Rabbi Zacharias writes that there was a protracted silence, and the young Palestinian said to me, I thought at once that this explains everything and nothing. If forgiveness is merited, then it's not really forgiveness, is it? But I remained silent. And he said, because I saw two completely different worldviews at work, one with a common starting point with God, but radically different views of God. What we need is grace, and it's needed, and that is the reality that the Christian Bible teaches us. And so, longing for forgiveness in verses 3 and 4, the psalmist goes to this whole idea of forgiveness. In fact, if you use my sermon notes, scratch out longing for and write in claiming. As I contemplated this passage for a while, I realized that it's more of a claim the psalmist is doing. He's not longing for forgiveness, but he's claiming what is already here, his. Look at verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And the picture here is one who is taking a, a, a spreadsheet and marking down every one of our sins. In fact, a popular evangelistic uh, 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 presentation uses this picture. Uh, if I had a rap sheet with the police department, and if I only did three, three sins a day my whole life, uh, my rap sheet, if you will, would be miles long because you just av- uh, measure the days of your life multiply by three, and you can see how many sins. And we all know that we sin more than three times a day. So claiming that forgiveness, no sinner can stand before God. And in fact, in Scripture, it is amazing how many times that occurs. Some sample, Psalm 76, 7, where the psalmist there writes, You, even you are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? Remember, God is righteous and holy, so he has righteous indignation and anger against the sin of the world. Psalm 143, 2, And do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man is righteous. The prophet Nahum 1.6 said, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up before him. Malachi 3.2, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? Revelation 6.17, towards the end of the scripture, For the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? You know, sin is the problem, and the psalmist is seeking forgiveness for violating God's perfect holiness, and God gives it freely. How terrible it would be if we were, would expect God to keep a record of our sins and then present them to us at his judgment seat. No one could stand before God. Again, in Romans, the Apostle Paul, in chapter 3 of Romans 10 through 12, and he's, he's quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one good, not even one. Boy, what a bummer. I'm going to go home and just hide in my house, you know, curl up. And that's the bad news of who we are. Every human being, the Bible declares, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even though we, you know, we're like the, uh, you know, I used to shoot a bow and arrow. My brother-in-law, Don's brother, made custom long bows and recurve bows, and he gave me one. And and I could never hit the bullseye on the target, you know, never hit it. I finally figured out the way to do it was shoot the arrow first, then go draw a bullseye around wherever the arrow hit, (laughs) you know. And that's kind of how we do it. 
we say, well, you know, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm a pretty good person, actually, because I'm not like that guy or that guy. And uh, so we play the comparison game. And, but the bad news is, is we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The good news, though, look again at verse 4. What's the first word there? But, there we go. Okay, this is, it's a contrast. It's, he, he's, he's saying, okay, this is the way it is. But, and what does he say? There is forgiveness with you. There's the claiming at, that you may be feared. There is forgiveness with you. That's the claim of forgiveness. For all of us, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we claim that forgiveness the moment we believed in Jesus for everlasting life. Because none of us were totally innocent. I don't care if you were five years old and you accept, believed in Jesus at uh, uh, vacation, Bible school, whatever it is. But the good news is, is that the gospel, there's forgiveness with him. There is forgiveness. It's a wonderful word, that contrastive little three-letter word, but. And that's the hope. That is the good news. You may not find forgiveness with other people. You know, if you have broken relationships, maybe your spouse is not forgiving you for something. Maybe it's a child who's not forgiving you or a parent or coworkers, somebody that you harmed or, or offended in some way. Maybe not even intentionally, but they are not forgiving you. There's all of that going on. But you need to understand that God forgives you. And you need to write that down and remind yourself of it. God is a forgiving God. He will not remember the transgressions that we have. have. He will remove them as far as the east is from the west. There is forgiveness. Think about, uh, remember Moses in Exodus chapter 34, and he received this definition of God, this defining moment where God revealed himself to him, and God said, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. What wonderful words for Moses, but what wonderful words for you and I. When we know that we have not been pure, when we know that we have violated what God's perfect will is. And so if the Lord should mark iniquities, none of us have any hope. But because of Jesus Christ, because of what he has done, and the psalmist is looking forward to a redeemer, we need to remember that, that they were looking forward to the Messiah coming. And we look back and we have the full story of Jesus Christ who came and lived the perfect life, took our place on the cross of Calvary and paid the penalty for sin. But then he rose again, gaining the victory over sin and death. And so forgiveness, what is forgiveness? There's forgiveness for the guilty sinner. There's guilt, uh, forgiveness for the sinning saint. You know, believers are called saints. And yet sometimes we don't act very saintly. And so there's two ideas here. The first is judicial forgiveness. By the way, we could spend a whole sermon series on the whole concept theologically of forgiveness in Scripture. Let me just briefly give you an idea, though. In Scripture, there is something called judicial forgiveness. That is forgiveness from God who is the ultimate judge. He is the perfect judge. It is obtained by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It covers the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And it's possible because of the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary, his death, burial, and resurrection. He took our place. And in his death, he paid the penalty for all our sins. This is the very deep waters of the crucifixion scene in the Gospels is all the sin of the world piled upon Jesus. He took it all upon himself. 
That is such deep waters we don't understand it. We tend to focus upon his physical sufferings on the cross of Calvary at the hands of, of the Romans and the Jews and all of us, really. But he took all of our sins, past, present, and future, and all that penalty and he can, so that God can forgive us because his righteous claims have been met by the perfect substitute, Jesus Christ. He took our place. That's why we're acceptable to a righteous, holy God, because he sees us in Christ. The second thing, not only is there judicial forgiveness, but there is parental forgiveness. Parental forgiveness, the forgiveness of God, our Father, the perfect Father. I call it fellowship forgiveness because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that the judicial forgiveness has been given, past, present, future. But what about, like when I received Christ as Savior, when I was 28 years old, I believed in him for everlasting life, but I'm not perfect since then. They still sin. How are those sins dealt with? Remember, Jesus is called in heaven. His current ministry is he's our intercessor. He's our advocate. Those are judicial kind of titles that when Satan accuses us before the throne of God, Jesus Christ defends us. Even though Satan may be right about our sin, Jesus Christ defends us because he is our substitute. But the third title is he is our great high priest. Why do we need a priest in heaven? Because we still have sin in our lives. And so we're called to confess those sins and to return to fellowship. I often use the example, the forgiveness of God the Father. It's obtained by confessing our sins to him. It results in the restoration of fellowship. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your DNA is set. You are a child of God. Nothing is going to change that. You are eternally secure. But when you sin, you don't lose your salvation, but you break the fellowship with God the Father. When I was a young man in college, and then after Don and I got married, I was very, of course, I was agnostic, atheistic. I was very rebellious, and my dad and I didn't get along. And I broke fellowship with him because of my sin. Did I cease being Roy Knox's son? No, the DNA was set. Nothing could change that. I'm still his son, even though he's in heaven. The DNA is there. I'll always be his son. The relationship is secure. But the fellowship was broken. It took some years before we repaired, and I repaired my sin and anger against him to where we were back in fellowship. And so that's that parental forgiveness or fellowship forgiveness. The great high priest, that too is purchased by us by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And one result of his forgiveness is that he should be, look at verse into verse 4, that you may be, we expect the word loved, don't we? That you may be loved, but it says you may be feared. Why did the psalmist use that terminology? When I think of what it cost the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive my sins, and there's plenty of them, but then I extrapolate that out to the whole world of everybody who's ever lived and ever will live, it's full, free, and eternal. It causes me to just bow in reverence and awe and trust and worship before him forever. So I want you to remember four things about God's forgiveness here that the psalmist is getting to. God's forgiveness, first of all, is inclusive. It is inclusive. In other words, not just this sin and this sin, but all sins. 
God took all the sins of the world. Remember that when you condemn somebody for their sin, whatever that may be. Remember that Jesus Christ paid it all. And what those people need to do, what we need to do, is believe in him for everlasting life, as John 3.16 tells us. So his forgiveness is inclusive, all sin, not just particular ones. Secondly, God's forgiveness is for now. Look at Scripture again, but there is forgiveness with you. It's a present tense verb in the English, but what is very fascinating about it, the force of this, of this sentence is even stronger in the original Hebrew where there is no verb at all. The Hebrew simply says, with you, forgiveness. Isn't that wonderful? With you, forgiveness. There's no qualifiers, no conditional kind of things other than believing in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, and we are forgiven. They're forgiven forever. So his forgiveness is inclusive. It is now. And thirdly, God's forgiveness is for those who want it. It's free. It's, it's for anybody who wants it by believing in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. The writer of this psalm is confessing his sin, basically. He's not covering it up, which would be a way of pretending that he does not need forgiveness. God is a God of mercy and grace, and all we have to do is just pray to him. And as believers, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, remember if we confess our sins to him, and he already knows what they are, uh, but we confess them and we turn from them and he is quick to forgive us and restore us to parental for fellowship or that fellowship relationship with him. So it's inclusive. It's for now. It's for those who want it. Fourthly, God's forgiveness leads to a changed life or should lead to a changed life because we recognize what God has taken us out of. When you think back, if you're a believer in Christ, to who you used to be and now Jesus Christ has rescued you from that. And that salvation, that free forgiveness out of the wickedness that the world expects from us. If God forgives us for anything we do, why shouldn't we just go on sinning, some people argue. Well, that's not the point. The point is, is that Jesus Christ is active and living in it. And so it tells us to fear him. I remember that fear has to do with holy reverence of God, that he is completely other than us. He is, he is not our uh, I call it the electric blanket Jesus, you know, that wraps us up. I mean, yes, we all need this emotional kind of thing, but Jesus Christ, God himself, knows all about us. In fact, uh, Charles Spurgeon, who is a, a preacher from many years ago, had a wonderful sermon on this text, and he translated this verse as, There is forgiveness with you that you may be loved, worshipped, and served. Loved, worshipped, and served. And that's why we gather here to worship in song, in the word of God, and praise God for who he is. And so we should be humbled and softened by what God is do, do, doing. So in the third stanza, in verses 5 and 6, this is a poetic third stanza. Uh, stanza. Uh, we're saying that we are trusting, we're hoping in God's word and waiting for the Lord. Look at uh, verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchman for the morning. So verses 5 and 6, it's waiting and watching, waiting and watching. Uh, there's a waiting for the Lord. What is he waiting for? What is the psalmist waiting for? Well, he's not waiting for deliverance from his troubles because it's not about troubles, it's about his sin. He's not waiting for forgiveness either. As I said, he has claimed it. 
the stanza has, says he has found that forgiveness in God, but he is waiting for God himself, God whom he is offended by his sin. Remember David with, after his sin with Bathsheba, uh, his great confessional psalm is Psalm 51. And in that psalm, he says, against thee and thee alone have I sinned. And we go, wait a minute. What about Bathsheba and the child who died from that union and her husband who he had killed on the battlefield and the, and the uh, betrayal of a whole nation as the king? He should have been stoned. Wait a minute. Why do you say against God and God alone I have sinned? Because ultimately that's where it lands. That is where our sin lands against God and God alone. And so he says he's waiting for God himself, the forgiveness, the intimacy that will follow. He's waiting in faith. And he's watching like a night watchman. Uh, when I was working road construction, forest road construction in the spring, we would get laid off because we called it spring breakup. The frost would go off the roads. We couldn't haul logs, couldn't build roads. So they did inevitably stick us in the lumber mill uh, there. And I was assigned a, a job that few weeks that I was laid off in the lumber mill. I was kind of like a night watchman at the lumber mill. And I would clean up some sawdust, but uh, I would work from like uh, 10 o'clock at night until 8 in the morning, something like that. And uh, boy, about 3 o'clock, those of you who uh, are insomniacs, you know at 3 o'clock life does not look too good. It's dark, it's bleak, and uh, you're just waiting for the dawn, aren't you? You're just waiting for the dawn. And anybody who's worked, there's a reason they call it graveyard shift, by the way, (laughs) and uh, Uh, you're just waiting and longing, and it seems to take forever before the sun starts to come up. And this is the picture that the psalmist is depicting for us. We're watching. There's this anticipation. Waiting is vigilance plus expectation. It is being wide awake to God, wide awake to God. Then the last stanza, verses 7 and 8, because the psalmist is claiming the forgiveness that God is giving him, He's waiting for God. He's watching. He's anticipating all that God's going to do in his life. Then he embraces this abundant redemption in verses 7 and 8. And notice, it's all up until this point, it's all about the psalmist as an individual. We think of ourselves individually as we read this. But when it comes to 7 and 8, it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Of course, he's concerned about his nation, about his people. But we as believers in Jesus Christ, we are concerned about the whole world. If you've been praying through Operation World on your little phone thing that I showed you a a number of weeks ago, you know that every day there's a a different thing that guided prayer through a year's time you can pray for every nation in the world. And that is the picture. We want everybody to be blessed and to worship the true God. This last uh, stanza is extraordinary in that sense because the psalmist has been sorrowful for his sin and he's, he's repented And he's prayed this prayer of faith and hope in God, but it's been centered around him. And now he's found this forgiveness, and he turns to Israel and encourages them to put their hope in Jesus. So he embraces abundant redemption. And so in verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness with him, abundant redemption. Two great words, loving kindness and redemption. Loving kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. And it is the equivalent of the New Testament word charis, which we translate grace. It's unmerited favor. God's loving kindness goes on forever and ever and ever. I think of General Booth, who founded the Salvation Army. He always had a saying that Christ is first, then others. 
Christ than others. And this is the idea that he gets, he gets this from this psalm, from the individual to the nation, to the world, to the whole people around us. And of course, we pray for those within our orbit of influence. Perhaps you have family members who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior or neighbors, and we pray for them and usually try to pray for them daily. And I would encourage you to write down four names of people either in your family or close to you. You work with them, you go to school with them, uh, wherever it is that they, God has laid them on your heart and pray for them and pray for their salvation that they begin to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And so the psalmist found that when he confessed when he sought forgiveness, uh, it wasn't just a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It's God's nature. He doesn't change. He will always be the same. Put your hope in the Lord, he says in verse 7. And then the psalm ends with a profound promise, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He's personified the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and he says that he will redeem them. He will redeem them from their sins. Of course, at this stage, remember, Scripture is God has progressively revealed his will. And this psalmist didn't know as much as you know about the Bible because he didn't have the rest of the Bible. And so he, is, uh, he, he didn't understand how this was all going to work out. Uh, but God is just, and he knows that God is just and is acting justly and that God must punish sin and not forgive it. And yet Paul tells us later the fact about God is not made entirely clear until the death of the Lord Jesus Christ some centuries later in Romans 3, 25 through 26. Even though the psalmist didn't understand all the details of how this was going to work out, he still prayed that God would have his way with the nation Israel. And by the way, God is not done with Israel as some evangelicals teach today. They teach a spurious doctrine of replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel. That is not true. According to Romans 11, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Revelation, God still has a future for the people of Israel. So we can understand this redemption because it has been accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. Its meaning is explained in the Bible. We see that there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And then Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from our creator God. And there's, if we read that verse, there's that other three-letter word following that statement, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember that. Today, if you never believed in Jesus Christ for your eternal well-being, today can be the day of your salvation where you'll be assured you have a future and a hope. Even if you died this afternoon, you will be with Jesus Christ if you believe in him for everlasting life, that we do have a future and hope that this life is not all there is. So I would exhort you to read the Gospel of John, read, the, read Romans, and reflect upon your own eternal well-being. Let us, as the worship team comes forward, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day.